Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Unlock the potential of elderberry farming with growing farmers. Elderberries, thriving even on marginal land, offer a lucrative opportunity for profiting off your property. Not just the berries, but also sticks, flowers, and leaves are in demand, diversifying income streams. With low initial investments, the path to a profitable elderberry business is within reach. This resilient crop can be your gateway to tapping into a growing market for health-conscious consumers. Start your elderberry venture today and cultivate success. For more details, visit growelderberry.com. That's growelderberry.com. Today, my guest is Tim Joseph, the pioneering founder of Maple Hill Creamery, the largest 100% regenerative grass-fed organic dairy farm in the U.S. After leaving his corporate job, Tim positioned Maple Hill at the forefront of the dairy industry, championing grass-fed organic dairy and regenerative farming practices. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So share a little bit about what got you into farming. Honestly... When I was a teenager, I didn't grow up on a farm, um, mm. but when I was a teenager, uh, for some reason, I had decided that that's what I wanted to do, um, mm. and my parents didn't really dissuade me um, for whatever reason. Uh, they, they probably uh, questioned that <laughs> later as they watched uh, yeah. the act of starting a farm, but um, I didn't go directly into it. I did work in other areas and other industries and was sort of uh, learning and attending, you know, workshops and conferences and doing it all along. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, eventually had the opportunity where I was going to be working from home, um, back in 2003, before that was really a thing. And we thought, okay, now is probably the time rather than go buy a house, uh, with a garage and all the normal stuff, we could take the same money and, and go buy a farm. And that's what we did. We bought a 250 acre dairy farm in central New York state, not entirely knowing what we were going to do, but directionally knowing, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where we wanted to go. And so that was sort of the real first official all in kind of thing. I was still working off the farm, Mm -hmm. um, remotely for many years, but, you know, a couple of years later bought cows and started milking and all kind of with the idea that I wanted to stop doing my job yeah. and get off the road and like, you know, follow that dream. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's, that was really the start. So did you ha- have any background in dairy before that or, oh, wow. So it was literally just like, we got a cow now what? My, my wife learned how to milk from our son's kindergarten teacher. And I milked my first cow when 60 of them got off the truck in the driveway and we, okay. we, we turned on the milking machines. I mean, our neighbor came back and showed me how to turn everything on and get it going. And yeah. so it was really trial by fire. Yeah, absolutely. Not, yeah, not, I- not a recommended methodology. I just want to clear that up. So when I was growing up, my sister decided she wanted dairy cow. So she actually went and worked for our friends who had a dairy and they had Holsteins. Okay. And so they gave her a calf because, you know, she was helping milk every single week. And that calf grew up into a cow. And then, you know, we had a, a baby cow. Mikey was his name and he was crazy. Um, but 
we started milking that cow. And I vividly remember it being minus 20 degrees up there in upstate New York. And we were milking and it wasn't like a, a cozy barn. It was a big hoop, hoop structure. And so, you know, yeah, that the, uh, it was so cold that the milking system, we had to bring the milking system inside to warm it up enough so that it actually milk. Yep. I, I remember those days as well. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah. I may be scarred for life. You know, 4 a.m. milking is not my thing. Yeah. I mean, I still get up early, but it's just, that wasn't um, my cup of tea. But again, yeah. I respect farmers that do that because that is something else. Um, it's, and It's a whole different level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so often they are loners in the fact that they are the ones that are doing the milking twice a day, which yep. I think would drive me crazy. My friend, Ben, who has a, probably the largest herd share dairy in Virginia. Um, he now has obviously a team that comes in and milks for him. So he's only, you know, milking once a day now. Um, sure. But still, um, still. Yeah, it never stops. You know? It never stops. That's absolutely correct. Okay. So first 60 cows and then where at that point did your milk go? Um, we were conventional at the time. So we okay. basically went in and replicated what the prior family had done. You know, there was a mm -hmm. TMR mixer where we mixed hay and grain and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so we just shipped into the conventional milk market. Um, and then, but I had always been focused on grazing and for whatever reason was fascinated with the idea of having the shortest distance between the product you create and the solar energy that created it. I don't know mm -hmm. where it came from, but, you know, I used to go to all the Stockman grass farmer conferences and just, it was mm -hmm. in my head that that's what I wanted to do. And so we were always sort of pushing the envelope on reducing the grain and, mm -hmm. and all of that. And also, um, you know, conventional dairy at that time was, it's always a struggle. It's a brutal yeah. Yeah. structure. We were yeah. new, we were you know, had too much debt, all of that kind of stuff. And so the pricing in conventional was brutal. Our practices mm -hmm. were moving just naturally more towards an organic system. And yeah. so we started milking cows in 2004. And then by 2007, we had decided, hey, we're close enough to mm. organic that let's go organic. And we shipped okay. to Organic Valley at the time. Yeah. And at the same time, I had already started talking to the state ag and markets about sort of where could I put a little micro creamery? I wanted to do something more with our milk. Yeah. And I had thought I wanted to go grass fed, which was like heresy back then. Like there's just yeah. not a thing in dairy. And we were also dead broke. And so when yeah. you transition from conventional to organic still today, you milk your cows, you manage your cows in the organic system, which has higher costs mm -hmm, while shipping mm -hmm. into the conventional system. Correct. Really, really bad combination. And yes. so yes. we basically just pulled the Band-Aid off and we went grass-fed and organic at the time mm -hmm. for those two reasons. One, we were broke. We couldn't afford organic grain if we wanted it. Yeah. Um, and I knew we wanted to go grass-fed. Um, and so that's what we did. Yeah. So now at that point too, um, your cows probably weren't, what, what breed of cows were you working with? I had purchased, luckily I knew enough to purchase a sort of smaller cattle. Mm -hmm. They were mostly crosses. They came from a guy not too far from us who was, he had like a New Zealand style milking parlor mm, and was okay. raising. 
So I okay. bought those cows, um, which was a good foundation, other than oh, the right. fact that we had a tie stall barn and they were freestall cows. So they did yes. not have any concept of going into a stall. And <laughs> I think my yeah. back problems that I have today are, are are basically a result of wrestling cows into stalls. Yes. That was the only mistake. But so I had a good foundation, but still um it it was a huge learning curve because even he fed, you know, five to six pounds of grain a day and we were at zero. So those first couple years were or first many years, honestly, were pretty rough because back then there was literally, there wasn't not only not support for how to do grass-fed dairy, yes. uh, there was sort of disdain for even trying to do it. And mm -hmm. so it's just sort of, yeah, try again, trial by fire, figure it out. Yeah. So you started conventional because that's what was what was your yeah that's what the support you had like and and that's exactly like how we started we started our vegetable operation which is actually very much around the same time we 2004 is when my brother yep. and i are six, 16 and 17 you know started growing and our mentor at the time says well you know you can grow stuff in the field organically but use the 2020 20, 20 in the greenhouse because it's so simple <laughs> yes it is very simple um stuff grows very well um but then when you put those transplants outside and do an organic system they collapse yeah. So it's just that one year we were doing conventional feed inside. Then we went to 100% organic. I mean, at that point, Vermont compost was a thing. So all we did was switch to Vermont compost. And that's a sure. seamless transition right there. Yeah. All right. So yep. then you started going things. Um, so you've, you had those genetics and those genetics obviously helped tremendously. Sure. So then were you still growing like um, some higher protein feeds in the field? So you could not at all. No, I never, I never knew how to plant a crop. Okay, you know, which was a blessing and a curse. Okay, right? yeah, uh huh. Um, and most, most of my ignorance ended up being the only reason why we did any of this. Yeah, and why, why in some fashion, through brute force and ignorance, we got it to work. Mm -hmm. But if I had grown up knowing how to crop, or if I had grown up on a dairy, I never would have known you can't do this. Correct. Right. Yes. And so we just. <laughs> We started with the closest pastures behind the barn and broke it up into paddocks and made hay and baleage on the pastures that I hadn't been able to fence in yet with T posts and one wire and yes, you know, baling twine. Yep. And fed them baleage and, you know, uh minerals and salt and just did the best we could. Mm -hmm. Um and we were the challenge was back then again, like we didn't really know the process of conversion the way we do now in terms of hay ground or like what that looks like, yeah. how long it takes. Mm -hmm. And so it just takes, it still takes today, even knowing all those things, you know, when we bring on new farms to Maple Hill, we, we talk about, you know, you go through the dip where you change your system, you pull all the crutches out from under it, but the new system has not started Mm -hmm. to rise yet right the biology the chemistry all of that is still betwixt and between and it doesn't really click until year three four five where that hay field or that overgrazed pasture um is now biologically active holding more water the cows are mm -hmm. are better suited to grazing like all those things come together but they you it gets way harder before it gets easier and easier is a relative term. It's still mm -hmm. hard as hell. It's the hardest way to make milk. Yeah. At, 
at all. Hands down. Absolutely. It's not easy. No, it's know? not. So then you went grass fed and organic. Was that when you started the creamery or you just start at that point you were shipping to. Yeah, I was still putting my milk on the truck um, in parallel had started to um, I, there was a little barbecue restaurant up the road from us uh, that had closed and I knew the you know, family and they let me turn what was the kitchen into a little micro creamery over a, a whole winter mm, and okay. bought a 30 gallon pasteurizer um basically on our last open credit card and started making yogurt <laughs> and selling it <laughs> okay so it started with yogurt um yeah. because that actually is pretty much well you do butter um you do do whole milk but you do a lot of yogurt yeah we do kefir. now we're sort of the inverse we had no milk when we started and it was all yogurt okay um now it's mostly milk and and yogurt, butter, all of those things. But we really started out as yogurt because that's what we could do, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. as a small small creamery with thirty gallons that made the most sense yeah. dollars wise. Yeah. You know, do you guys have distribution distributors in, in Southwest Ohio? Yeah, we've got we're pretty much um, nationwide. Interesting, yeah. interesting. I'm gonna have to get with your team because right now we're bringing a butter in from California, and again, nothing, oh, okay. nothing against them, but New York's sure. heck of a lot closer than California for us. Sure, sure. Um, Ohio still doesn't. Well, we can't find it, and again, someone may may correct me, but we still can't find a organic butter that we can bring into the store because we, oh, okay. we have an on farm market store. So, um, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. And then if obviously if we can get one product, we might be able to get more products from you as well, sure. which would be awesome. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, I know that's not the purpose of this podcast, but a lot oh, of no, times that's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Always happy to sell something. Yeah. <laughs> so then all right. So then you started the creamery there. Now, what was it like working with the state of because that's is that was that state or federal who you're working with at that point? That was Ag so Agon Markets, uh -huh. New York State Agon Markets, who basically administers the federal rules what's called the PMO pasteurized milk ordinance in the state. Okay. And so we, we didn't start out as grade a, but we were shortly after that, uh -huh. you know, we went grade a, so we could ship across state lines uh -huh. and they were really great to, I mean, we were the first new thing in forever in, yeah. in dairy processing. So I guess it was kind of interesting and they were so helpful yeah. um, and had a great inspector and helped us figure out, how to kind of bootstrap it yeah. and do it well and and then again too there is some of those older inspectors are fabulous like i again yes when i was helping my buddy again i wasn't helping i was just there and the inspector showed up to my buddies in virginia and the inspector was like well he said, he said the rule says but and he would there was several times where he said well we could do it this way or you might be yep. able to think about and yep. he couldn't give advice, but there are certain ways he could say things to help the guy move along. Because again, yep. there's the, this stuff's not cheap. I mean, no. my buddy, I think put the, he put in a new milking parlor this la two years ago, or maybe last year, and easily over a hundred thousand dollars. You know, oh, and the amount of yeah. stainless steel and you know high temp water and all that stuff is just yeah. mind blowing. Crazy. Um. So again. And again, I think too at that point too, they were probably seeing the writing on the wall that the New York dairy industry was basically evaporating. They were losing yep. farmers left and right. So anything they could do to try to help farmers come back was probably yep. majorly on the list. They were very supportive. Yeah. They still good. are, you know? Yeah. So then, all right. So let's talk, because like fast forward now, because you guys are actually a collection, you know, it's a, what you call yep. a milk shed, which is a really fascinating name. Yeah. We call it a milk shed. Yeah. We're, we're not a co-op, you know, we're, um, 
we're but we always say we're not a co-op, but we're cooperative. We mm -hmm. have a very close relationship with our farms. Um, we've got about 130 farms all in, in upstate New York. We are moving, adding Pennsylvania here oh, very cool. shortly. Um, and, you know, we we buy direct from them. We take all their milk and we process it in a variety of plants, uh, milk plants around New York State and Pennsylvania into, you know, half gallon milk, mm -hmm. butter, yogurt, kefir, um, and distribute it all over the country. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So then with those, what was the, what point were you at when you said, oh my gosh, we need a second farm or we need, cause. That, well, so it was 2009 when we started mm -hmm. and 2010 um, is when it started to get hard to just do it with our own milk. Okay. And um, so I had met a couple, Paul and Phyllis Van Amberg, uh, Dharma Lee farm and Sharon Springs through a distributor actually mm -hmm. just yeah. common friends. And, they had ended up going grass fed as well. Didn't come from an ag background. They were shipping to um, an organic market, and mm -hmm. shortly thereafter, they they were the first ones crazy enough to leave, you know, a big stable co op, Organic Valley, and mm -hmm. ship to Maple Hill. And they're still with us today, and really are the backbone of our sort of farmer assistance, consulting, education. Phyllis wrote the the grant um, mm -hmm. that we got for the Climate Smart. And oh, they're wow. just like the best of the best in terms of helping mm -hmm. people know how to get the bi biology to work, how to get the cattle to work. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of the foundation of like the Maple Hill that we have today. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, it was like, okay, well, there's three families down the road from Paul and Phyllis who are interested and we helped them and mm -hmm. then it was 12 and then it was 30 um and you know went like that and all along this point too you're obviously scaling the processing as well yes 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 so is your processing still at the same original place or have you moved completely no no we we outgrew that barbecue restaurant in 20 we ran that for a few years and okay. we were running that pasteurizer added a pasteurizer working seven days a week yeah and then we moved into the Hudson Valley. There was a plant that had gone, uh, it was brand new, um, but the guy had gone out of business like nine months in. Mm. And so we moved the processing a couple hours away in 2013 um, and got that, turned that into a yogurt plant. And um, that's when we stopped farming ourselves. It just couldn't, Yes. Could we could barely... I could barely do both when we lived on the farm and a quarter mile from the creamery. And yeah. it was just impossible at that point. And then we ran that until 2016 and then outgrew that again. And at a certain point, particularly in dairy, you just can't, you can't build things out fast enough. And the cost is so high that it becomes a, a smarter move to utilize other capacity in the form of co-packers. Uh, there's yeah. plenty of dairy capacity in New York state. And so we started to make yogurt, bottle our milk elsewhere. Gotcha. Okay. So now you just work with a third party that kind of manages yeah. that for yeah. you. Yeah. 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 Because you're absolutely right. Again, with the milk system changing, um, there's ebbs and flows. And why would you not, if it's already good, perfectly wonderful exactly. facility with all the equipment, why don't you just let them do what they're yeah. good at? And you focus on, so basically now you guys are more just the marketing distribution. You got someone who's managing, but obviously you're probably still involved in recipes and making sure it's all clean and good and yep. all that. Um, and then the farmers are just growing the milk or producing. You know, yeah. Our job is really two ends. It's one is to, um, you know, manage the, the milk supply on the mm -hmm. farm side, 
and do whatever we can to, you know, when it's, when we need to grow and bring people on, help them do it, help people be more successful mm -hmm. there. Yep. Um, learn all of that. And then on the other side, you know, market and sell the products that those farms, you know, are creating, we're creating out of their milk. And so the middle is, is outsourced. And, but yeah. the two most meaningful ends to me are what Maple Hill, you know, has focused on. Mm -hmm. So then obviously you guys scale quickly. And I mean, that's right now with our farm, we're actually pretty scaling pretty fast with just the amount of people coming on board and, and, and that, what would you say the secrets were for you guys to be able to to scale without going crazy? Well, we did go crazy. Okay. So um, <laughs> I, was, I have no secret there. <laughs> um, it was brutal. Absolutely brutal. I, I, I mean, if I knew, you know, you've heard this from lots of entrepreneurs. If you knew mm -hmm. how hard it was going to be to do half of what you had to do, you'd never do it. I mean, mm. just the brutality mm -hmm. of it. Um, but the, the secret is to just keep going. <laughs> I mean, like, you just have to keep mm. going like you were. And for me, I mean, we had committed to buy other people's milk. And so like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I just mm -hmm. can't, it's horrible. It would be horrible to do that and then stop and fail, you know, and we scaled. It, it yeah. was also a much, it was a different time, right? 2009 was the start of sort of, I would say what we now see mm -hmm. as a natural food industry not to start but like it started to cross over more than it had been in the past into conventional but it was still not what it is mm -hmm. today yes and so i would hope i mean it, it's got to be the, the the road has been paved not by maple hill but uh, many more brands have done this sort of thing where there's more acceptance so it was probably especially brutal at that time it was grass-fed dairy which you know in hindsight you know, really didn't be, yeah, it was brutal on the farm. Yes. And then from a product yes. standpoint, it didn't really become something that people thought about, honestly, probably until like three years ago, like it took that long for it to yeah. be a category in, in the supermarket. Right. It's fascinating to me that it's taken that long to actually become like, okay, yeah. now we have a grass fed category. Yeah. And while you're yeah. doing it, you're thinking, "Ah, oh, it's it's here. We did, you know, it's it's the thing now." And it's like, "Ah, oh, no, yeah. no, no," you know. <laughs> so it was, yeah. you know, I we we you know we we had to take on investment. We um, it just cost a lot to get mm -hmm. it as far as we did, um, and you know, we did it with equity, outside equity, because you just couldn't mm -hmm. you couldn't borrow enough money <laughs> to to Correct. do it yeah. right. Um, yeah. There's a million things I would have done differently now, uh, but you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and also the world has changed, so you could do a lot of things differently now. But back yeah. then, it just was a different game, you know. Yeah. But, so the equity. What I would say, if I if you don't mind, is is yeah, like after having gone through that, you know, I I work with a lot of um, producers and small brands and things like that, trying to help, and my my sort of the secret that I wish I had had and that I, I would like people to have today as farmers and direct marketers and things is to slow down and focus on margin versus growth, right? Mm, if you can do that, okay. you can't mm -hmm. always do that, right? And it, and we couldn't do that. Um, 
but that is really the secret to to what you're doing or what most other people are trying to do is is yeah. to really be very selective about their approach and where they're going and and to focus on quality and margin and so that you have room to maneuver and have more time to obtain the customers that want your product versus having to discount and all of that to try to gather them up right so where it's worth it that that would be a a, a secret sauce now <laughs> yeah know. so what you're saying is don't try to get into the market with the lowest priced option be be slower be and know your customer know your product have a high high quality product and slowly work on that so that you can keep that margin which is basically because cash is king cash keeps you alive exactly. And if you don't have that, you make some stupid mistakes. Yep. yep. That's okay. it. Okay. That's, That's, it. Awesome. That's good. Um, and so then with the outside equity, I mean, obviously there was times in your business that you just needed to make that growth and you couldn't. Yeah, you have you have to, if you're going to go into the retail, you know, the world of retail, mm -hmm. you have to perform, you have to promote, you have to market, you have all those things. Yeah. And that takes serious dollars. And um, so, you know, that's the path we took, mm -hmm. not that you can't, yeah. you know, there's people that can do it without that, but it's, it's a, a, a very, um, difficult road. I'll say. Yeah. I would say too, that you being outside of New York city Metro probably was a huge advantage because your main market was only a couple hours away. Absolutely. Absolutely. They gave yeah. us a really good foothold that gave us credibility because we were yeah. able to pretty easily get into a lot mm -hmm. of the, the stores that people sort of in the next region or whatever would look at and say, oh, they have it. Or, you know, Whole Foods yeah. Northeast has it. it. You must, you must be legitimate, yeah. right? That was definitely yeah, what's, helpful. What's that big co-op down there that I keep forgetting Park the Slope. name of? Park Slope. Yeah. 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 Once yeah. you're in Park Slope, now you're like, oh, they've done Oh something. yeah. You're, you're the real deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so what would you, so obviously your role with the company changed as you go, you grew. When sure. did you realize, okay, this is no longer us. We need to actually bring in a management team that's actually done this before? Uh, that was 2017. Um, I was just completely burned out. Um, mm -hmm. So we started in 2019, 2009, 2017. I had basically decided I, I just wanted to transition mm -hmm. out of that role that there's people that had done this sort of CPG thing before that could probably mm -hmm. um, take it further faster. And I was just so burned out from that first period that I, I needed to step back and focus more on the farm side and the milk shed and, mm -hmm. um, you know, storytelling and all of those things. So that's when I, I did that. And ever since, you know, that's been my role and I've, I've stayed very involved with the grass fed sort of movement and regenerative mm -hmm. agriculture and, um, you know, all of those things, which, are you know what are enjoyable uh to mm -hmm. me and and what also make a really big difference in terms of what makes maple hill the special brand that it is is that like from the beginning we really truly did it the hard way like we didn't mm -hmm. cheat we created a certification to to a third-party certification to certify that we were grass-fed and others we've you know tried to create best practices for farms and all of those things. And that's what makes Maple Hill as a brand. The special thing is that, that it is, is just that we really, we've tried, we've done our best to do it right every step of the way. And by we, I mean, our farms, like they mm -hmm. are the hands down best at creating 
premium special 100 percent mm -hmm. grass-fed milk um mm -hmm. that's what makes what we do really special yeah so i know you guys have a pretty significant grant that you guys got to mm -hmm. kind of help so let's talk about that because yeah. I, I think the education side is is, is huge here yep yeah. So the roots of the way that we approach the grant really go back to that early time where there was no support for what we were doing. And so Paul and Phyllis had joined, other farms had joined, and we really couldn't go out to get help. We turned inward and we sort of created this little culture of like never ending improvement in how we do things by sharing practices. Right. And so mm -hmm. over time, we determine certain practices were important to the success of whether you could be a grass-fed organic dairy farmer repeatedly every year because you're okay. successful, right? Like how you graze is what determines whether you're going to make it financially. And so we had many years ago really wanted to provide, and, and I've always had a, you know, it's a belief that the best way to achieve success when working with other people is to in, uh, align incentives, right? Like I, mm -hmm. carrot always works better than a stick. And so we had wanted to pay our producers basically for, for implementing certain practices, right? Because we knew if mm -hmm. they did that, there would be this multiplier effect where, oh, if you're grazing taller and managing your rest periods better and all of those things, your you know, next year is going to be better than this year. That's how you start mm -hmm. the biological yeah. flywheel on the farm, right? And by giving yeah. people, you know, an incentive to do that, we thought it would drive them further forward faster in terms of their success. And so when the Climate Smart um, grant opportunity came, um, we basically, the whole thing for us, for Maple Hill, our grant is... I think 75% of the $20 million that we got is allocated directly to our farms. Um, mm. We get 25%, the remaining 25% is to administer it, which is quite a job because yeah. we're doing soil samples and farm mm -hmm. walks and, you know, it, it was, it's a lot of heavy lifting and then um, uh, dollars to market what we're doing to raise awareness of what grass fed dairy and how it can be, you know, fit these climate smart practices and what regenerative can do. Um, and so all that money's going to our farms and it's all going to them basically for implementing the practices that will yield them the most success over time. So it's truly a win win. Um, our farmers certainly needed a shot in the arm um, the last mm -hmm. two years, you know, with the inflationary pressures on everybody. But I have to say, from seeing all sides of the fence, it certainly did hit um, dairy producers mm -hmm. in a huge way. I mean, I think yeah. it's high 20 percent, 30 percent in some areas that they saw cost increases. So having this, yeah. these funds available to them. Basically, for work they're already doing that they could just do, you know, improve in some places and to reward them yeah. has just been, you know, an a, incredible opportunity. And uh, yeah, we're super grateful. So then tell us about like, so they basically this grant pays for them to do specific practices. Yeah. I mean, there's practices around um, 
pasture score for what that's a great example right yep. is mm -hmm. is going out and taking baseline pasture score soil samples and all of those things and over time as they improve their pasture scores which you can only do by changing your grazing behavior right your methodology mm -hmm. um Correct. they will be able to receive um dollars as a reward for having done that and so it's a five-year yeah. grant and so, you know, this is year one. Um, I forget how many farms we've we've got piloted. It's quite a number. And then we'll have another group next year. And they, you know, basically as they see success on the ground, literally, um, they get paid for uh, having done that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, so then as part of this also to reaching out to new farms that may be interested in going grass fed and helping them. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great opportunity for them because um, which is the timing of adding some, some new farms, right. Is great because they actually have the biggest upside um, because they've mm -hmm. either not been doing grass fed for long. Um, they might've been doing some cropping. And so there's some grant money around, you know, avoiding converting ground uh, ground into crop ground. Um, and mm -hmm. so it's just a great opportunity for someone who has been looking at grass fed wants to change. But like I explained earlier, you do go through a dip and it's a dip, not only in difficulty, but it's a cash flow dip as well, right? Your production mm -hmm. is going mm -hmm. down, your costs might be going up and your rep, your, your revenue is not. And so this can help those that want to transition and have some assistance to do it it's a it's an amazing opportunity unfortunately it's just human nature most people the time to trend if you if you know the conventional market the organic market ups and downs and if you are looking to move to a better market everybody always tries to move when it's the worst right when they're in the worst mm -hmm, pain right mm -hmm. oh this sucks yes i, I want to go grass-fed yeah. It's like, no, that is the worst time to do it. Having done that, <laughs> right? I know yes, personally, yes, don't yeah. do that. It's like when, when the price is back up and you're feeling comfortable and all everything is working, just realize the next, that's not going to last. And now's the opportunity to take that uptime and convert. Luckily with this grant right now, it is a rough time in conventional dairy. It's a rough time in organic dairy. This is giving farmers that move over a, a, a bridge basically to mm -hmm. allow them to do that. And so absolutely been, you know, really powerful and it's achieving the goals that the program set out to achieve is, which is moving somebody from, you know, practices over here mm -hmm. to grass fed, organic regenerative practice over here and, you know, yeah. incentivizing it. What do you think the biggest, uh, I guess, I don't know if it would be, aha moment for these these folks that are transitioning is once they start to go down this journey i mean obviously moving a cow from basically grain to grass is probably the hardest thing yeah and and we never recommend like going grass-fed is not just putting down the grain scoop right there is so correct, much correct. more to it yeah and so we really try to be very very selective in terms of you know, really making sure people understand how difficult it is. And that's not your path. But if you're going to, if you're, so if you're crazy enough to be a dairy farmer, which is a form of crazy, right? Like you said earlier, mm -hmm, we're going to, mm -hmm. you're going to get up every day and milk twice a day forever. That's crazy. And then you're crazy enough to ignore our, you know, trying to get you to not go grass fed and you're still going to do it. That says you're committed, 
which is mm -hmm. the biggest impediment to grass going grass fed is the gray matter between the ears, just like any change. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So once Absolutely. they've decided yes. that, you know, it's always very difficult in the beginning, but there is a point where pretty much anyone who's still doing it gets to a place where it's like the lifestyle aspects of it are so much better once it starts to work and the pleasure of moving cows on grass versus moving grass to cows, right? And moving, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, they put their manure in the field during the growing season. That's all a beautiful thing that people really like. And then when the biology mm -hmm. starts to click and they've gone through that dip, but it really, it is a long road, you know, it really is three to five years. Um, but once they're at the end of it, it it's very difficult. I can't imagine someone have to, having gone through that and where it's biologically working and the cows are working, going back the other way is just, you know, Correct. impossible. Just from a pure lifestyle standpoint, you know? Yeah. Uh, a couple questions here. I'm on your Instagram looking at that. Do you still, um, most of your farmers are putting their cows out all winter on like uh, lots or are they bringing them inside in like big freestall barns? It's a mix. Okay. We have um, we have more and more people that are doing like the big um, hoop building, yep. um, bedded pack style mm -hmm. deal. We've got people, you know, that still are using a tie stall. So the cows might be in at night mm -hmm. and then they're fed outside during the day. In grass fed, winter feeding is outside is actually one of the most powerful tools that a farmer can use because you're you're actually depositing organic matter strategically mm -hmm. and if you do it right mm -hmm. right so yeah. if if you follow if you do your plant grazing and you're 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 tracking how many cattle you you know cows you've got on a given pasture and what production you're getting out of it and you have a a, a piece of ground that isn't as fertile, right? Doesn't have as much fertility in it, doesn't have the water holding capacity, and you're not making as much milk on those acres as these acres over here. Winter feeding is a beautiful way. So what a lot of people call bale grazing now, yes, putting the feed out in those places or putting it on a weedy spot that you need to get organic matter into um, is a, a really powerful tool. So that's a lot of what we've tried to encourage over over time is use the winter. It's actually a huge advantage um, from a fertility standpoint. And that way, when spring comes and the biology and the soil starts to, you know, consume yeah. that waste hay and manure, it turns those pastures over so much. It's an accelerant. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, um, you know, but we have a mix of indoor, you know, tie stall, freestall, bedded pack, um, you know, in our whole network. Very cool. Um, the other question was, um, you know, is do not do chocolate milk anymore. Talk to us about that. Yeah. <laughs> chocolate milk is one of those funny products that everybody wants it, but nobody buys it. That's absolutely so, true. You know, like every they people, myself included, my whole family, they're like, we love the chocolate milk, like right? it's delicious, right? Yeah, that's great. But dairy plants hate to make mm -hmm. it because after you make chocolate milk, you got to wash everything, everything, yes. as you can imagine, yes. right? Yeah. And it's crazy slow selling. So retailers, 
again, well, want it. Yeah, we'll try that. But why is it so slow? It's like, well, everybody doesn't drink chocolate milk every day, myself included, yeah. right? I like I'd buy I'd buy it once for my kids. I'm not going to give it to them every day. Because that's right? then all they I, will drink if you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's that's why. It, you never know. Yeah. It may come back in some form or fashion. So at some point we've we've talked about it, but yeah, right now. Because yeah, we bring it in here and it's just such a slow seller. And to the point that I've told the crew, like, don't bring it in the wintertime because we just can't move it fast enough. It goes bad. And then exactly at least when regular milk starts to go, we can turn it into yogurt. But sure. chocolate milk, it's kind of done for. Yeah. And then yeah. the other thing is the uh, I don't know if it's a thickening agent or that's also a big one too, is what do you put in it to keep the chocolate from settling out? Yeah. That is yeah, to keep it clean. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, no, it's it's a tough one. It's absolutely a tough one. Um, what would you say to the you know beginning farmer who's maybe thinking about getting into this? What would you what kind of advice would you give to them? Think real hard, <laughs> you know, uh, and then do it again. It's really difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're serious about it, go work somewhere. You know, there's great, there's a <laughs> as you probably know, like help in agriculture is impossible to find. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so go pay your dues somewhere, go work for cheap or intern and really make sure that you, you really understand the scope of what <laughs> dairy is first mm -hmm. and grass-fed organic dairy on top. But there's you know, dairy grazing apprenticeship is a program that's available in most dairy states. Now they're based in Wisconsin. They're, they've got people in New York. There's uh, conferences, you know, um, every year uh, grazing, you know, there's, there's uh, always grazing conferences that farmers will put on in the winter, go network, find people that are doing what it is that you think you want to do and, and, and try to, you know, learn and, and offer help and see if you can do it first, because as you can imagine, the capital required to get into this is immense, right? Cattle, equipment, all of that. Um, but if you're serious about it, we need more young people doing it. Uh, that's for sure. And dairy in general, that is an interesting thing about grass fed organic dairy is it's a very young, yeah. um, you know, we are, I think our average age is 40 something, oh, wow. uh, yeah. which is like a full 25 years yeah. younger than the average age of, of a dairy American dairy farmer. Yeah. So it is attracting new people because it's a new opportunity and it's a thinking person's dairy. Not that dairymen and women aren't thinking. Absolutely. It's just another mm -hmm. level of, you know, thinking way ahead and creativity. It's not formulaic. It's yeah. not an input-based system, right? We're substituting management for inputs. So if you're looking for a formula, grass-fed dairy is not for you. If you are are creative and looking, you know, like to, to develop strategy and all of that in terms of, I'm thinking about my pasture 60 days mm -hmm. from now based upon today. That's the kind of thinking yeah. I'm talking about. Then it's a great opportunity yeah. and, you know, and go for it. But it's crawl, walk, run, yeah. you know, go, go learn from somebody else first. Done right. It's almost magical just to watch that grass come back yeah. and just see the animal. Again, it's turn green grass into white milk. That's still, that's still very magical to yep. me. Um, yeah. 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 Now, one of the things too, is that you guys, you are nationwide now, correct? Yes. 
Yeah, but you're still, all your farms are sourcing from upstate New York. Has the price of land skyrocketed even in some of the very remote areas up there as much as it has across the rest of the country? A bit, yes, for okay. sure. But relative to agricultural land everywhere else, for whatever reason, upstate New York, if you're if you're looking for affordability, I, I believe it, it really truly still is uh -huh. um, within reach. Uh, it has certainly gone up, yeah. but not the way it has elsewhere. Um, and, you know, it's also an opportunity because there's a lot of people who are getting out of the city, right? Mm -hmm. And getting out of towns and going and buying a farm, but either have no interest or business in terms of running a farm. And that is an opportunity, right? Absolutely. So if I was a young farmer, um, young person wanting to get into this, finding that landowner that has a former dairy farm that's growing up in weeds or whatever, that is a great opportunity to go rent and, and, you know, get, get, get okay. a farm under your belt without having to put all that capital out, put your money in cows and, and all of that, not in the land. And so there's, there's opportunities out there because of the nature of the people that are buying a lot of this farmland. And you can be providing them a service by keeping their farm beautiful, by grazing it with your cows and creating this special milk, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Tim, thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate your time. Anything else thank you'd you. like to share before we go? No, just uh, thanks a lot. Thanks for for doing your podcast. I think it's uh, it's great and really appreciate it, the opportunity. Absolutely. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.